everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast. Today, again, we'll be bringing you special content. This is not a Parsha podcast, and I'm sitting down today with Dr. Tanya White, who I refuse to introduce again because we've, we've sat down too many times for conversations. So if you don't know who she is, then you haven't been listening enough to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, what Tanya and I want to do today is to connect back to an earlier thread. Uh, if you go back on the podcast feed, episodes 28 to 31 was a series that Tanya and I did on uh, on suffering, on suffering in Jewish sources. We did an episode on the biblical roots of suffering, marginalized rabbinic theologies, uh, the Holocaust as a prism through which the idea of suffering and evil has been assessed. And in our fourth episode, we spoke about universal suffering in the eyes of contemporary philosophy. And at that moment of time, we connected it to what we were going through in, in the corona period. Now, Today we want to sort of add, I would say, a fifth episode to that series and to speak about some of those ideas, bring them into focus, and of course focus specifically on what we've been going through in in the world in the past, uh, certainly in Israel and all over the world in the past two months. So first, Tanya, it is uh, good to have you back here and to be back in conversation. It's always great to be in conversation with you, Yosefa. So why don't you bring us into this for a moment about uh, about where we are and why the question of, you know, somewhat even philosophical questions of the questions of evil in the world, where is that intersecting with our reality right now? So first and foremost, I want to just say that I was ambivalent about doing this podcast, I'll be totally honest. Um, I felt, and especially in the first month, that we were facing such visceral and cataclysmic shattering, I would say. Um, I wrote a lot about the fact that I felt silence was the only response. Um, I, I I want us to speak today about the problem of evil, about suffering, um, but I also want to make very clear from the start that the aim of this podcast is not to offer absolute interpretive schema or even, to be honest, answers to the problem, to the suffering, to the evil that we've seen. Um, and if it's okay with you, Yosefa, I'm actually going to read something just to open the podcast from a book sure. that I found particularly incisive for me over periods in my life um, where I've met with grief and loss and suffering. Um, and I think I've, I've kind of reached back to this book again um, from a totally different prism of what we're going through as a nation. And I'm just going to read two very short things that she writes. It's a book by someone called Megan Devine um, called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And this is what she writes. She says, there are losses that rearrange the world, deaths that change the way you see everything, grief that tears everything down, Pain that transports you to an entirely different universe. Even while everyone else thinks, nothing has really changed. To me, that really expresses the paralyzation, I think, that all of us have felt over the last five weeks. The absolute 
shattering, the fragmentation, the fact that each of us wakes up every morning and feels as if we're living on a different universe. And then she continues later in the next page and she says, and this, this is going to be kind of the prism through which I want, to, I want us to take this podcast. She says like this, the reality of grief is different from what others see or guess from the outside. Platitudes and pat explanations will not work here. There is not a reason for everything. Not every loss can be transformed into something useful. Things happen that do not have to ha- not have a silver lining. We have to start telling the truth about this kind of pain, about grief, about love, about loss. And I want to say that one of the things that I hope that we'll do through this podcast is to offer a variety of responses, responses that already exist, that are pre-existing within our tradition. Um, but this podcast isn't about platitudes. It isn't about pat explanations. It's not about apologetics. Um, it's about being honest. It's about looking at reality. It's about feeling the suffering. And it's about knowing how to move forward despite the fragmentation that we're all feeling. Um, so, so for me, that's, that's what we're here, we're here today to talk about. Um, I'll also just bring in a few terms that I've used in the past, both in conversations with you and otherwise, that it's sort of another great phrase that comes in are uh, life quakes, right? Or, or things that we go through. Again, the difference between... Uh, between grief, right? This this is not just a personal journey, right? Because it's it's connected to a national one. That the proportions, I think, are so different from sort of the wisdom that we use in our life to deal with our everyday hurts and everyday losses of life. The proportions of this, the magnitude of it, are are so utterly different. And I think that that's also sort of part of the cataclysm that you that you mentioned is because it's just so much bigger than and, and therefore it feels even that much more difficult to to process. One of the shatterings that happened wasn't just the fact of the ground being literally taken from under our feet. I think it was also a lot about the idea that there was this this shattering of our perceptions, the shattering of the perception of our strength. And even to a degree, the shattering of the perception of the enemy, the, the visceral images of evil that were, def- that were, um, came out from that moment, um, was so shattering and so massive. And in a sense, I think so many people understood at that moment that something changed. Whether it was their belief in the goodness of humanity, whether, whether it was even their belief in the, um, you know, that the, the enemy had some ulterior motive. The enemy wanted um, good for their people, good for themselves, and that we were giving them, you know, an opening for normality, for civil life, and the belief and the knowledge that they all they want is our destruction. And I think what was even more shattering in the weeks that followed was how worldwide anti-Semitism, you know, we kind of felt, oh, we've had this terrible event happen to us. And we expected people to look and understand and to be sympathetic to our cause and the opposite occurred. So not only was our belief in the goodness or not even the goodness, but the kind of perhaps even the, um, uh, the fact that the, the enemy, you know, had, had an ulterior motive or the enemy wasn't as evil as we necessarily might have expected, but our belief in the goodness of humanity worldwide, in what we believe to be a liberal humanistic movement that existed, even that was shattered. 
And there was perhaps a shattering even within Israel itself between what we perceive to be the left and the right. And I, I speak a lot about this idea of confirmation bias. What happened was that over the last two, two years, three years, whatever it happened, everyone existed within this idea of confirmation bias. I believe a certain thing and everything, every piece of information that I'm given, I align with the bias, pre-existing bias that I have. Um, and I think on October the 7th, those confirmation biases were shattered, both from the left, from the right, from the dirty, from the religious, from the non-religious, all over. And the irony of the fact is that in the world, what we saw was an emboldening of the confirmation bias, where there was kind of maybe even a, a, a subconscious anti-Semitism, um, perhaps maybe in many cases conscious anti-Semitism, what we, were, what we saw was that any fact or information that was given to people, that was presented to people, was twisted in order for them to confirm the, the bias of anti-Semitism. So there's been this shattering on the one hand amongst Israelis, certainly, and maybe even amongst Jews worldwide, whereby we've kind of shattered all of those preconceived ideas and models and paradigms, perhaps, that we've been holding on to, maybe for even for decades. And on the other hand, we've seen that worldwide, people who we thought were our friends, who we thought shared our humanistic values, who we thought shared our liberal outlook, um, ha have, have been instead holding on to this, um, this kind of anti-Semitic outlook, which we believed might have disappeared, you know, over the last 80 years. So I think a lot of things have changed. I think there's been a lot of changes that are happening and continue to happen. Um, and, and, and maybe for many, many people, many Jews, there's been this kind of um, shattering of, I don't know, I guess you would call it the belief in the goodness of humanity, maybe. So ju just in response to that, that because I, I feel like my response was a little bit different. I feel like you described kind of the shattering that happened, that's happening a bit on the Israeli left um, to a certain degree. And I think that if I'm speaking my own voice, assuming that it represents others, a, a few things. First of all, I... I think that for me that the big moment here was that it was the first time that I felt an existential threat. I mean, it was the first time I ever really was scared that somebody might like just throw a, a bomb onto my house. Now, obviously, if I lived in Steyrot or Nativot, this wouldn't be the first time I would be having that concern. Not to mention also for a lot of people, the physical entering of the homes uh, was one that uh, something that we really hadn't fully considered up until this moment, even of those who live with many, many Arab neighbors around us. Uh, and, and the other piece, I think, is that the reason why I think I, I didn't necessarily feel a shattering of, wow, mankind is capable of evil, that, that might be because I just grew up in a home where the Holocaust was so, was, was very viscerally present, honestly. And I guess I only realized it in these kind of moments how much it was present and how much the sense of, you know, life is precarious was something that, that was there. And I think also the last piece, and we're not going to get political at all, which is that, 
you know, when people say they want to kill you, I tend to believe them. Uh, I think a lot of people literally wrote outright and said, you know, all this time, you know, well, I've read the charter of Hamas, but I never really thought that that was, that was what, that was what they really intended. And there was something about the events that happen now that prove that, oh, well, what they wrote and publicized and said is actually what they intended. And I think that a lot of us, I don't think it's confirmation bias, but I think it's simply that because we aren't evil <laughs> and because we haven't been trained in, uh, in terrorist jihad theology, so we could never conceive that somebody might actually do that. And something about this event, the again, the 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 numbers, the sheer vastness of it, and the brutality, really drove point the point home, at least to those of us here. Yes, people actually could do this kind of thing, uh, and 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 it actually be committed in that way. And the last piece I'll say about how much we are or aren't shattered. There's a difference between being sort of that you're your thought processes are shifting or shattered versus your fear for everyday life. And I feel that your, your existential fear, yeah. your existential your ex fear. And I think that there's a, a big element here as to how much one is reading the media, exposing themselves to images and what's happening. And I will speak for only myself when I say that I've been very careful not to overexpose. And while I know that on one hand, the price of that is, how much horror did I experience from October 7th? On the other hand, there was, there's also a question of preserving emotional stability, certainly in those first weeks when we also had everybody home and had to deal with everybody in the house. So just putting those pieces out there. Yeah. And I want to add to that yourself, which is something I want to engage in as we go on is the idea of bearing witness, because I think the notion of bearing witness is a supremely important, um, piece in the puzzle here um, and something that I think in terms of when we're even speaking about theology I think it's one of the primary prisons through which to um, speak about this event and I think for many people they're, they're asking themselves the question about bearing witness I want to be a witness to the suffering of these people I want to see the suffering in their faces I want to understand it I want to feel it and at the same time I also know that I need to preserve my sanity I need to preserve I mean I need to put in a defense mechanism that will allow me to function and if I'm going to you know look at these these brutal images, which I personally don't think there's at this present moment any prudence to looking at those images, then how do I bear witness to the evil that happens? And and these are big questions. These are huge questions. These are questions that we're struggling with as parents when we're speaking to our teenage children who are really being exposed to these images and we're telling them do not watch them and our children are saying to us but why should I be protected when other teenagers living in the south were not protected and what as a parent do you say to your child how do you tell your child that watching these terrible terrible um, videos and these terrible images that it's going to leave an indelible psychological mark on them for the future it's these are massive questions that all of us are grappling with um, and and I think that they form not just the questions that we are looking at on a day-to-day -day, you know basis of living here in Israel but they also form a an underpinning a theological underpinning of what does this evil mean what does it mean to us how can we interpret it? How do we bear witness to it? How do we allow ourselves to stand before those that are suffering and, you know, help them through it? The, the question of, you know, how do we bear the grief? How do we bear the event without it destroying our morale, without it destroying our very, very core? 
So I think these are all huge questions that, that everyone here in Israel and, and abroad as well, all, all Jewish people are, are, are grappling with at this moment. Okay, so why don't we talk a little bit about some of these paradigms? Again, I want to just clarify, we're not speaking about politics, right? We're, we're really trying to think about religious, moral paradigms of how we are responding to the events of the past two months. So what what are some of, let's say, for example, you know, Chorban Habayit, that was a cataclysmic moment. I would even say it created, right? It created a lot of, of rabbinic literature that's powerful and significant and formative for our life until today. Um, what, so when, we, when looking at that event, so, we, we do have, to a certain degree, let's say, in Tanakh, in that classic position of sin and punishment. We do have, you know, they uh, worshipped Avodah Zarah. They did, they, you know, they did uh, all these different sins. And because of that, God destroyed the first temple, right? But then there, the shift sort of happens later on. So there is a shift. I want to just go back a second and, and talk for a minute about um, about this idea of confirmation bias. Because uh, to go back to that 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 paradigm. Um, I've heard, and, and many of us have heard already, voices coming out saying, you know, all the religious Yeshuvim were saved because they were religious, um, or because of some arbitrary sin like wearing shaitals or not governing enough, these things happen to us. Um, or even, and I'll, I'll, I'll even take it one step further, this is the birth pangs of Mashiach. Um, you know, we have to go through this terrible suffering in order for Mashiach, for, for the period of Mashiach to come. And from a from a personal perspective, and I'm sure there's many people here, listeners, many listeners that will um, agree with us. I all of these explanations do not are, are very very difficult to swallow. And I refer back to Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, a very well known uh, Holocaust theologian, who said the following made the following theological statement about the Holocaust. He said, "No statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children." Meaning, what's he saying? He's saying if you can say something like because I wore a sh- because women wear shaitals, that's why these children are being burnt alive, or because we didn't govern enough, that's why these children are being tortured, or because um, we didn't keep Shabbat, that's why children have been taken hostage. I think if we are able to say that without losing something within our own humanity, then we can say it. But who can say such a thing at this moment? And who Bihlal can say such a thing? So I suggest we need to reframe the way in which we look. Now, in terms of the divine retribution model, which is reward and punishment, that definitely was a, a model that we see. We say it in the second paragraph of Shema. We see it throughout various prophecies about the first Khorban. And it's definitely a model that exists. I won't suggest that it's a model that existed at the time when um, the first Khorban happened. And it existed in, during the biblical period where God was more manifest, there was divine, uh, much more, a, a much greater divine kind of presence in the world. And there was direct communication between God and his people. I think as the world has progressed and as, in a sense, humanity has grown up and there's been less and less direct revelation, Humanity has adopted new prisms, different ways of looking at reality. More than that, we're living in a time in which we understand we are autonomous human beings. We have 
uh, our cognitive capacity has expanded, the way in which we look at the world has expanded. And we even see that during, uh, we see it when Chazal bring in or talk about the second Chorban and why the second Chorban happens. There's not the same direct quid pro quo way of looking at reality as there was during the first Chorban. And they bring a more generic reason for the second Chorban, which they call Sinat Chinam. Now that generic reason can take two, it can take, like, it can be taken to two different two different end uh, conclusions. One is that the that Sinat Chinam is basically a blame game. We're blaming all of you because you all did terrible things, is saying the rabbi, a bit like the, the original Chuban. You did all these terrible things, and because of that, God punished you. But I actually think that there's a perhaps a more nuanced way of understanding what the Chachamim are saying, what the rabbis are saying, where they're to, and, and they give the story, by the way, of Kamsa and Baal Kamsa, which I think is, is, is the, um, explains to us, expresses to us what the rabbis are doing. Rather than just blaming the people, the rabbis are actually taking responsibility themselves. When they give us the story of Kamsa and Baal Kamsa, which Yosef, you maybe all expand on in a minute, they essentially are turning around and they are not just throwing the blame and the shame onto other people, onto the people of Israel. They are actually saying, we, every single one of us, including us, the rabbis, as the leadership, we are taking responsibility for the cataclysmic event of the Choban. We are the ones, everyone is at fault. Everyone needs to do self-introspection. Everyone needs to look at themselves and ask, how am I responsible for this event that happened? And in a way... What they're saying is that perhaps because we hated each other so much and we were so weak within ourselves, that is, um, a, as a consequence of that, we were weak and could not fight off the enemy. Meaning there's, there's a kind of naturalistic underpinning that's happening through the rabbi's generic kind of reasoning of Sinat Chinam. I think that the, the story itself of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa is one that we're, is that we're familiar with. I actually just want to do a brief import into our current reality, which is that, which is that while I think that direct religious explanations for what's been happening are heinous and should be, you know, it, they should not be offered in terms of this is why something happened or, as you said, you know, if only people were, you know, being more makpid and mitzvot or because they were makpid and mitzvot, those were the kibbutzim that were, you know, that were in harmed. I think those are really, really destructive. On the other hand, what I do want to say is that what I do think is relevant is the combined religious perspective of conversing with God and also the fact that this didn't happen, you know, in uh, in a vacuum. And when I say vacuum, I don't mean the proportionality concept, but I mean that we were in a very weakened place as a society. And I think that that's very similar to what is being described by the Horban. We have both the, the societal um, pilug, the societal breaks and fissures that we were experiencing coupled with yes something that perhaps is divine and that's you know beyond our ability to know in any uh, any certain way and so on that i think that the parallel dafka to the khurban to the period of the destruction of the second eighth mikdash i think is is very is very evocative in this current moment of time i agree with you and i want to bring in here another another differentiation which i think is very important when we're talking about um, the problem of evil through the lens, through the perspective of modern thinking. And that is, there's a very big difference between an explanation and a response. 
an explanation is where I come to explain. It's it's what we call theodicy. I come to explain, I come to justify God and the way in which God functions in the world. Um, why do I need to do that? I need to do that very simply because my experience of the world doesn't match my ideological or my conceptual reasoning of the world. My conceptual reasoning of the world is that God is good and that God is just and that God has purpose and meaning in everything that happens. Um, here we're really talking about why the problem of evil is a problem, right? And all of us carry around a suitcase of concepts and structures that match their reality. And ultimately, when we empirically experience evil, suffering, tragedy, it doesn't matter, you can, you know, there's so many different ways of defining it. What happens is that there is a contradiction between the conceptual suitcase, the conceptual baggage that I carry, and the empirical reality that I'm faced with. And so what we try to do is we try to close the gap. We try to match what we are experiencing, or what we've seen, or what we are um or what we're going through with the pre-existing concepts that we have adopted over decades and decades. But, and, and that's where the explanation comes in. I'm explaining the evil. I'm justifying the evil. I'm pretending maybe the evil isn't really evil in order to hold on. And again, this goes back to the idea of the confirmation bias in order to hold on to my pre-existing biases, my pre-existing conceptual framework. And sometimes we need to let go. Sometimes in order to um, grapple with the evil, with the suffering, with the tragedy, sometimes it's enough to say there is that gap and the best we can do is respond to the gap rather than explain the gap. And that is what I would like us to do to do today, to, rather than searching for explanations, which by the way, and, and, and one of the reasons why I think explanations don't work is because what they do is they play um, cognitive gymnastics. They try to do everything so that everything fits. And ultimately, if there would be a way of grappling with the problem of evil that worked, we would all know it by now. There just isn't. And in my mind, therefore, the best that we can do is to find ways to respond rather than how to explain it. So two points. The first is, I think that, and I think you've taught me this, which is that we sort of moved into the world of responses in a post-Holocaust world. That mm -hmm. because the Holocaust met us, and you know, anyone who wants to really go back there, feel free to go back to that episode. The Holocaust met us with something that was so much bigger than we could ever imagine that I think that the last vestiges of, you know, you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, kind of, kind of dissipated in the world because it was just something that conceptually, religiously, internally was, was too difficult to uphold. So, I think that, that, that just from, to follow, you know, we spoke a little bit about the Horban, but I think that also important to mention, and we're not doing an episode on the Holocaust, but that that sort of was another watershed moment in terms of how we, how we respond and shifting from response as opposed to answers. Of course, still people, st people still seek answers, right? People still seek to m have things be, be clear to them. And one thing that I'll say, which is that, again, I'm not as philosophically minded as you are, Tanya, and that's why our friendship is fun, but I, I think that when I look at what's happening around me, I think a little bit back to the Rambam that we saw 
so long ago together. Uh, and the Rambam spoke about three different kinds of evils. And one of the evils he spoke about was the, uh, was the evil that man brings upon himself. And whether that was by eating bad food so he wouldn't be healthy or it was war. And, and I, I don't know, Tanya, am I just very overly simplistic? And I look at what's happening now and I say, this is a tremendous evil that man is bringing upon himself. And we had mentioned then, that the limits of the Rambam were that for, for someone seeking the role of God in their life, it wouldn't really be clear. So, okay, yes, maybe, you know, fundamentalist uh, Islamic philosophy and jihad that brings people to do these kinds of things is the work of, of men. But then where do you bring God into the picture? So I'm sort of presenting another voice. It, it might be mine, it might be somebody else's of saying, well, I don't know, people do really, really bad things. This is true. Um, and so on one hand, I really want to say this is the evil of men without saying that this is God's fault. But on the other hand, I guess it, I run into an issue of where, where do I involve God in this picture? Where Elie Wiesel spoke about this idea that he was on, it was a different planet. And she says, no, it wasn't a different planet, right? This happened in planet Earth by human beings, by human beings who as much had the potential to do good, had the potential to do evil. And in the same way that much like the indiscriminate workings of the cosmos, right, that nature is just nature. So human beings are also part of that indiscriminate working and we have to accept the consequence of being human being. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing what Aaron said. It was definitely far more complex philosophically than that. But the point that Har Hannah Arendt makes here is, is there really anything so shocking about the evil? that we see perpetrated in the Holocaust. And we can ask the same question about October the 7th. We saw evil that blew our minds, blew our minds in its cruelty. And the question we, we ask is, is, is this something that we should be shocked about? Is this something that, do, do we not know? Do, are we not aware of how, um, how radically evil human beings can be? Um, and by the way, Hannah Arendt actually um, disputes the idea of what she calls radical evil, uh, and that's why she calls it banal, banal evil. It's just evil that was that was basically apathy to a degree. And, and I think there is a big difference, by the way, between what happens in the Holocaust and between what happens on October the seventh. October the seventh seem, in my mind, is more of a a radical evil than what happens um, in the Holocaust for many different reasons. I don't want to get into it now. But then the biggest question is, and, and here I really want us to kind of unpack this, um, Hannah Arendt's philosophy is in some senses quite stoic. The world just is. It is what it is, right? Um, but I think as religious people, we want more. And I think that's why the problem of evil, specifically for a religious person, a religious person who believes in tikkun olam, a religious person who believes in the world as good, who believes that humanity has the ability to bring about a messianic era and bring about an era in which there is goodness that permeates our existence. I think that's why it sits at the heart, at, at, the, at the cornerstone of our religious kind of, I guess, our religious mission to to eradicate evil from the world, to eradicate. And then when we see evil once again rear its head in such a drastic way, in such an extreme manner, it, it kind of throws us as religious people because, again, we don't know what to do.
to do with it. We don't know how to fight it. We don't know how we can try and, you know, navigate that gap between the world as it is in a stoic sense and the world as we want it to be or as it ought to be in a religious sense. And in that way, what religious people often do is they deny or they repress the evil by saying, oh, perhaps it's just a veil for goodness in the world, or perhaps we just don't understand God's working, or there's many different ways we can do it. But I will say this, I think that one of the places where we need to begin is with the biblical narratives. And if we look very carefully at the problem of evil in the Bible, if we look very carefully at how we understand the problem of evil in the Bible, we see that many of our religious leaders, many of our religious, the religious characters in the Bible protest evil. They turn around to God and they literally put him on trial, so to speak. Abraham, Moshe, Gidon, Mordechai, and as we go further, obviously in history, there's plenty and plenty more, ending perhaps with the kind of paradigm of, 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 of protest theology in the Holocaust, which was, who was Eli Wiesel. And all of them turn around and they say, well, Abraham, you know, famously said, will the, will the uh, judge of the whole earth not do justice? And this kind of protest, to divine justice, protest to a world that shouldn't be the way it is, that we can't understand how it could be the way it is, that is very much embedded in our religious text, in our religious tradition, in our tr in our religious psyche, our religious consciousness. Um, and then the question is, how does God respond to all of these people? And that that's really what I'd what I'd like to try and understand today. So again, I, I really we we spoke about a lot of these uh, these elements in that in that earlier episode on the roots of biblical biblical suffering and the responses to it. And I think that uh, with a number several things that come out that are very important. Uh, the first is that there's almost this divine imperative, meaning we're supposed to fight back even if it doesn't bear any fruits, uh, and that the act of fighting is part of why is it a response because we're probably not going to get any answer as to why it happened but it's just i think it's the same way that people have found that the only way that they have been that they've not lost their mind in the beginning of this whole period of time was by helping others that i think that the act of of, of fighting back or saying to god how could you make a world like this that act of protest there's something about it that restores sanity meaning if we didn't fight back then we would lose our, equilib our equilibrium as humans. It's not the answer that provides us with that with that sort of internal stasis, but the act of fighting back is what's supposed to stabilize us in the face of something that is that is so terrible. So the act of fighting is one piece, and, and the other piece I'll say is that when you know, we sp you spoke about the Stoic perspective of Anna Arendt, what's interesting is that God actually experiences that in in Sefer Bereshit. Uh, famously, the story of Noah opens, and also later, in after the flood has already receded, God opens and says that um, that that a person's. I'm going to translate it the way that most of the commentators that I think are hitting at the pshat understand it, which is that not that man is evil at their base, but that the yetzel, which are the thoughts and imaginations of man, possess evil from from a young age. Meaning, we all have the potential to do things that are evil. God repeats that phrase after the flood story. 
And what you have there is sort of like the divine sort of resignation of, okay, like I get it. This is really at the base of man. And, and even after this attempt to sort of restart the world, I as God will have to come to terms with, as you called sort of like this stoic philosophy. Like this is, this is what man is, right? So it's, it's sort of an interesting, a mirror of how you're describing that sometimes humans respond to these difficult times, which is that to say, okay, like evil exists, that that's the way the world is. So I think I don't I don't know what I have to say about it theologically, but I think that it's very meaningful that that God, so to speak, has to go through a similar process. Is it enough? Does that mean that God then doesn't demand more of us? No, God demands a lot of us, just like we demand a lot of God. So there's something in the act of protest which isn't going to change the base of humanity, but that that I think the Torah is telling us has to be there on both sides, both our demand of God and God's demand of us. So I 100% agree with you. And I actually want to hark back to those examples that I gave, because I think that the answer, and here I'm using the answer in a kind of metaphorical sense, because I don't think there is an answer, but the answer that God gives is one that, in my mind, is the is, is really at the root of, of the response as viewed through the, the biblical paradigm. And what is that? So... First and foremost, there's no explanation. If we look at every single example of where a protagonist in the Bible asks God about the problem of evil, if it's Avraham, if it's Moshe, if it's whoever it is, if it's Gid'on, if it's Mordechai, all of them, Yirmiyahu is another example, all of them saying to God, you know, how is it that the world is the way it is? Why are you not doing something to remedy it? And in every single example, there is a what I call a covenantal response, not an answer, not an explanation. God doesn't come and explain himself. And by the way, in many cases, he could come and explain himself. For example, when Gidon turns around to him and says, where's the God of history? Where's that amazing God who came and saved us in Egypt? Where's he disappeared? He's abandoned us. That's literally what Gidon says. God has abandoned us. He says it to the Malach, to the angel. And then God appears to Gidon and he does not give him an answer. Now, if you were a, if, you know, if you were a classic religious leader at the time, or even a rabbinic personality like you would be today, what would your answer be? It's because you did this, and it's because you did that, it's because you didn't keep this, and you didn't keep that, it's because you sinned, and, and God doesn't say any of that to Gidon. He doesn't say to him, I haven't abandoned them, they've abandoned themselves, they've done this to themselves. God doesn't say that. He turns around to Gidon, and he, de- he essentially says to him, you go and save the people. You now have to, to take on the burden of covenantal responsibility and you have to go together with me, meaning I will be with you. You will go and take on the yoke of your people's suffering because you saw the suffering, because you felt the suffering. Moshe, the same idea. Moshe feels, he goes out, he sees his brothers and he sees he sees into their suffering not just he feels he looks and sees it as an external expression of you know of 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 viewing someone else's suffering the suffering literally viscerally touches him from within and then at the burning bush god says to him you know i've seen the suffering of your people I also have seen the suffering. And now, I'm sending you. You are going to fulfill that covenantal role. Now, all of the Abraham the same, all of these people, all of them, are grappling with what we call the classic problem of evil. This explanation is, is, is held, I think, 
um, by both by Rav Soloveitchik and by Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs, who was definitely a student of Rav Soloveitchik and his thinking, he wasn't a literal student of Rav Soloveitchik, but he very much was influenced by him, specifically by Rav Soloveitchik's essay, Fate and Destiny, called Dozi Zofek, which was actually the one of the first essays written after the Holocaust by any thinker. Um, it wasn't written, it was originally given as a lecture, and then it was written, um, where Rav Soloveitchik differentiates between what he calls a, uh, an existence of fate and an existence of destiny, specifically when he's talking about the experience of suffering. And he says in an existence of fate, we are we are victimized, okay? Our suffering, our tragedy, or whatever happens comes from the outside. But an existence of, of destiny is when we stop being the objects of our suffering, we stop being the objects of a fate that has been imposed upon us, and instead we transform into the agents of our destiny. We are able to take our victimhood and transform it into agency, and by doing that we become covenantal partners with God. And that, to my mind, is, is actually, even though it's, 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 it was actually groundbreaking, I think, for Rav Soloveitchik not to align himself with the classic you know, divine retribution model that had very much been the model that was taken by the Haredi, uh, uh, the Haredi response after the Holocaust, Rav Soloveitchik broke with that model and it took courage and it really took courage to do that. And he instead offers what, what I would say is a response and not an explanation where he essentially turns around and says, we will never really understand what this suffering is or what the Holocaust was, but the, what we can do and what we have within our power to do is to respond. And I would actually say that what, when Russell Avechik, um speaks about that and, and the way in which he describes it in the essay is actually going back to the heart, to the roots of many biblical paradigms of suffering and the problem of evil, in which God turns around and says, rather than there's a protest theology, there's the protagonist saying, how God could you have done such a thing? How can such a thing exist in this world? And God turns around and he doesn't offer an explanation. Instead, he says, don't just remain the object of your suffering. Transform yourself to become the subject of your destiny. Yourself to come back to our moment now. In, my mo in the moment in which we are today, I think you, you so correctly said that for so many of us, we are we are in our minds maybe many of us are not necessarily expressing it but i'm sure and i've spoken to many people who who are grappling with the evil they are grappling with the breakdown of so many different realms of their of, of their conceptual frameworks and their their emotive um defenses that have been broken down and the question then is, and, and very often as a religious person especially, we hark back to that question, where was God? What was God thinking? What is the plan here? What's going on? And I know many people are tapping into bigger pictures and to looking at trying to find meaning and impose interpretive schema. And I think all of those are, are right and good. And every individual has to find something that gives them strength. But I think the greatest moment of strength that all of us have had is to be able, as you said, to do things to others, to fight, to go. We are in an unprecedented moment in our history whereby we don't have to be passive bystanders of our national destiny. We can actually be active agents of our national destiny. And that means going out, fighting the evil, literally fighting the evil, not just metaphorically, but literally fighting the evil on the battlefield. And at the same time, being a witness to the suffering of our brethren and our brothers and our sisters here in Israel, helping them, the, the unbelievable, unprecedented amount of good and altruism that we've seen since October the 7th, 
has is bl- blows my mind. One is about power and sovereignty and supremacy of the Jewish people in their land, and the other, in my mind, is about the idea of battling evil and bearing witness, being empathetic, using our deep human deep sense of humanity to bear witness to the suffering of our brothers and our sisters and alleviating that suffering in whatever way is possible. And in my mind, that response is perhaps the most biblical of responses to the problem of evil, far more than perhaps the rabbinic response of the first Chorban, divine retribution response, which, by the way, does have a model in the Tanakh. I'm not denying that it doesn't. But I think that protest theology, and then uh, on the heels of protest theology, by the way, if we remain just in protest theology, very often we'll get to Richard Rubenstein, who basically rejects God. And I don't think that's the right response. I think protest theology has to be followed by what I will call covenantal response theology. So first of all, I think that that's an incredibly important explanation and elaboration because it also gives religious and philosophical dimensions to many people's natural response, which was to say, I can't even think right now. I don't have the brain power, so I'm going to act, right? Meaning that people's and their natural response. I think if, if in, in, in the beginning of Savior Brashid, God says that we have a natural evilness in us as part of our, as part of our capabilities and our capacities, I think that what we've seen come out now is this natural capacity to join together, to have solidarity and to help in the face of something that feels so overwhelming from an emotional, um, and here we're even saying philosophical, but even just from an emotional perspective to, to look at this evil in the face. I, I think that from a religious perspective, we're speaking about, um, it sounds to me when I listen to your explanation that there is a kind of faith or even an, a central kind of faith, which, which has some doors that are going to stay closed. Meaning, in my relationship with God, if I'm going through the Rafaelovichic perspective, right, asking that why question is is futile, and nothing will come of it. And when he was facing again something like the Holocaust, it just felt like an inappropriate, completely inappropriate question to ask. But what that means is that there are questions that we ask within our relationship with God that are kind of not worth asking, their alleyways not worth going down because we're not really going to come out with something that is, um, it, it feels to me like the same sentiment of Moshe asking God to see his face and God says, nope, you can't see that, right? Meaning I feel I, I, like... I'm going to push back for a minute though, Yosefa. I yeah. actually think the opposite. I don't think, I think Dafka people should ask the questions. Why does God invite Abraham to argue about Stom? Not because he knows he's going to win the argument. Because he knows could, what to, to teach him. Derech Hashem la mishpat. Now, what is Derech Hashem la mishpat? And in my mind, that is the key to understanding. Without feeling the gap, without experiencing the chasm between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be, we will not be able to take agency. Meaning, the imperative to act comes from that uncomfortable place of feeling. There's something not right here of protesting the world as we see it. If we simply accept the world in maybe even in a stoic way and maybe even in a, in, in a passive religiousness, right? If we accept, oh, we don't understand. It's okay. It's God's way of the world. And we just sit and hold tight till God comes and saves us. That's what I call passive religiousness. That way of looking at the world 
no longer in my mind in a modern when we when we live in a world with a modern democratic state in which we can be the agents of our own destiny that model no longer applies so and as long as we're as long as we're not turning ourselves into passive believers we must ask the questions we recognize that we're not going to have answers and then we act correct maybe we don't even recognize maybe it's a process maybe we begin by asking the questions because we are seeking the answers we're looking for explanations so tanya in our conversation today we've sort of taken topics and ideas that we've discussed in the past and trying to um i wouldn't say impose them but i say synchronize them with the world that we're that we're living in right now and while on many levels both politically personally for many uh the the period we're living in right now we're, we're still in the middle of the tunnel we haven't come out the other side we don't really know what perspective what ideas are going to be the most resonant maybe maybe new paradigms will will come out of this period of time uh, and and that's the possibility we're we're speaking in the middle and i'll just share with our with our listeners that tanya and i debated for a long time how to have this conversation to have the conversation what conversation to have uh and and i hope that you know the ideas that we're expressing which obviously largely express her humility uh but it, we're coming out with this very powerful message of the duality of action both that we demand of god uh to fix the evil in the world because we do have this notion that we can have a world that is bereft uh that is not bereft but that does not have this kind of evil functioning in it while on the other hand recognizing that this is also a way of the world uh and that we also uh, and that God demands of us to be an active participant, that those are two sides of this conversation that have to really inform every day of our life. And they have to inform the way we, we think and the way we respond and the way that we help other people, that it's it's an imperative. It's a religious imperative to to both challenge God and also to be an active partner with God, which are difficult. And some days those elements of us live more in harmony and sometimes they live with tremendous disharmony within us and i think that that even just acknowledging that tension is really significant i want to finish your sefer with a final um response to the holocaust by rabbi yitz greenberg he got in trouble when he wrote this uh, from many within the orthodox community he wrote originally after the holocaust an essay called the voluntary covenant it, he wrote it quite a, in the 1970s so it's even 1980s even i think so it was quite a bit after the holocaust but he spoke about the idea that the jewish people that he felt he felt and he he was offering it as a descriptive rather than a prescriptive philosophy he felt that there's as i already said that one can't impose metaphysical ontological explanation on the holocaust in light of seeing ch burning children um but he described what he believed to be the voluntary covenant and he said logically why would anyone and, and emil fackenheim um echoes or i should say raviets grunberg echoes emil fackenheim in this way who speaks about the idea of why should anyone want to affirm their jewish identity in light of what happened during the holocaust why would one or logically one would think that jews would run away from their jewish identity that jews would want to repress their jewish identity why would we want to recommit to a jewish to an identity that essentially is a death sentence for many and i would take and and he argues that in a sense well he speaks about the idea of god breaking the covenant he rescinded that and he actually um reframed it uh, years later.
But I, I don't want to even talk about God breaking the covenant. I want to talk about the way in which the Jewish people affirmed the covenant after the Holocaust. We saw unprecedented numbers of Jews coming to fight for the Jewish state, coming, reaffirming their Jewish identity. And I would argue that today we have the same thing. We were living over the last few years and we were all becoming, we were living with a deep sense of despair. We saw many people saying that they were ready to leave, leave the state of Israel, that they didn't belong any, that they didn't believe anymore in the Zionist dream. And all of a sudden, on the 8th of October, we had 150% raft. We had people, soldiers, the what we called the Doha Mufunak, the spoiled generation, we believed were spoiled generation, who were, you know, on their end of army trips in Thailand and India and the other ends of the world. Every single one of them jumping on planes to come and affirm their belief in the Zionist dream, their belief in the state of Israel, their belief in the Jewish people. And in my mind, what this says to us, and it says it more than anything else, is that we are all reconfirming voluntarily once again the covenant, the covenant of fate and please God, the covenant of destiny, whereby all of us understand that our role as the Jewish people is to continue God's mission in this world and to make the world into that world that we want it to be, to make the world into the world of the ideal world of the eschatological vision of the Messianic days where there is peace, where there is goodness, where everyone understands this universal conception of of goodness and of, of God and transcendence and there being a bigger picture. And to my mind, that really is what what we've seen and that's what we can see say we've seen we don't even need to impose interpretive schema we don't need to say it's because of this and that we can simply describe the situation as it is and we can say with 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 certainty that what we have seen empirically through fact over the last five weeks is that the people have once again reaffirmed their covenantal commitment their covenantal duty their covenantal responsibility to the biggest story of the Jewish people. And my prayer is that we are able, all of us, to continue to do that together. It's not just a motto, it has to be an existential reality for all of us. And at the same time that we are able to hold each other, to learn, to live with each other, to, 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 to kind of just be able to not even heal because I don't think there's going to be any full healing, but to be able to create some kind of balm that will be able to put over the hole, the gaping hole that the, that these survivors and, and so many of the people that we've lost um, are experiencing. And the th final thing I'm going to say, which I think is goes back to where we began with the idea of the confirmation bias, I think that is one word that I would say we have to hold on to, and that is humility. Humility, humility, humility. If all of us come from that deep sense of humility, of being humble, humble before the bigger mission, the bigger picture, the bigger, the bigger everything, not so certain of our views, not so certain of our beliefs, not so certain of who we are, and all of us come to, to, to reality in that way, to the Jewish people in that way, the world will look very, very different. Please, God, one day when this is all over. Tanya, thank you. My prayers are, are with yours as well. I hope that at least a fraction of all of that will, will come true. And uh, I think that there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. But I think that with the greatest recognition we've had so far 
is the people's understanding of their place in it as opposed to placing it on a higher power or government and seeing how much even without that which of course we also need we need to function that we we possess so much power i think that we as a people forgot that for for quite a while uh, and we got very busy with our with our our blaming and our and and our own internal struggles and i think that that's been uh, a very very painful but an important reminder thank you so much tanya Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.